0: listening to Answer the Call with Brandon and Kristen. Get ready to transform
1: because life is too short to put your dreams on hold.
0: Hello, you are listening to Answer the Call with Brandon and Kristen. I'm Brandon Millett. I'm here with Kristen Heemstra. We have an amazing show for you today. Kristen, tee it up. What are we doing?
1: So today, Brandon, we are talking to Stanley Krippner, who is one of the foremost experts on dreams. And Stanley has been in the dream business for about 60 years. He has done research dating back to the 70s with the Grateful Dead all the way till now. He is 85. He is still an active researcher. What I love about Stanley is with the dream work that he does, he always brings a skeptic. Like he always brings somebody who's skeptical because he wants a scientific rigor when it comes to talking about the manifestation of dreams, when it talks anything about dreams. So that is something I appreciate about him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He has brought academic rigor to a subject that's very esoteric, something that's very existential. He is most definitely first and foremost a scientist, uh, and he takes that approach to these topics. And so I, I very much appreciate it too. And the subject of dreams is. Uh, it is esoteric, for sure, and I was one of those people that didn't really pay much attention to them until I went to school and get my master's degree in psychology, and I read a book on evolutionary psychiatry that convinced me that dreams were important from an evolutionary perspective, and there was this research that was done where they disconnected the parts of the brain that kept an animal immobile uh, during sleep. And when they disconnected these, this part of the brain, the animals w- would act out uh, survival behaviors. And, and so it, it seemed like there was a purpose to the dream state when they were in the REM dream state. And you know, leaving aside for a moment the morality of whether this research <laughs> should ever have been done, um, I think it did in some measure convince me that we ought to be looking at these uh, seriously. And, and you mentioned it. I mean, we couldn't have anybody better in the world to discuss the subject of dreams uh, than, than Stanley Krippner. But what if dreams meant to you? I mean, h- how is your dream life? I guess I would ask.
1: Well, I have a very rich dream life, but I want to go back to what you were saying about the animal, because I have an animal I'm, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. And you see your animal running, at least I do, you know, and sign, you know, and you're looking, I'm looking at my animal. It's an 11 year old lab. And I'm like, you have not had a bad life there has been no point in your existence that I'm aware of where your life has actually been threatened. Um, you've had it pretty good dogs. So I'm really interested to know, you know, how where the dog is pulling all these clearly survival mechanisms is going through. So my dream life is equally as vibrant, but fortunately I'm not fighting for my life in dreams. And so that's the part that I appreciate. But dreams, I think, are such an interesting part of how we process information, how we process the day. They come through in metaphors. Uh, I think, was it Freud who was talking about the puns, how many puns come through in dreams with words? Uh, Right. Right, and I think I shared in one of our previous episodes about uh, grilling and what that, you know, there was a situation I had, and I was kind of instructed through a dream state to grill somebody, and it showed up as an actual grill so the puns are kind of a fun part of dreams. What about you? What's your dream state like, Brandon?
0: No, it's the same. And I think what you're just pointing out is the fact that dreams have a survival, uh, a survival purpose for humanity. It's just that our language is so much more complex than animals that these dream images come through to us very differently for you. It was through, it's through metaphor. It's through symbol. You, know, you mentioned the grill. For me, my dream life is super rich. Uh, I have really two kinds of dreams that I pay attention to. One are the, the big dreams, and these happen infrequently. They're usually heavy in mythological language. I know that they're not from my consciousness because they're much smarter and funnier than I am. They use, <laughs> they use languages I could not even possibly use. And I wake up from them just with this inner intuition that something important just happened. And then the other kind of dream I have uh, sort of is more of a personal life situation dream where I am given a gift uh, in the form of instruction for what I should do in a certain situation. And so I work the dream images a little bit, figure out what it's trying to say. And importantly, and this is something Stanley will emphasize, I take action because dreams are compensatory when whatever you're not doing enough of in your waking life, it'll reflect in your dreaming life. And so there is this balance, this feedback mechanism between your waking life and your sleeping life that's important to pay attention to, I believe.
1: Oh, I love that. No, I I, I love that. It's like you've got a team almost working to help you and kind of see where your blind spots are. I do want to bring up a quote. Uh, you know how I love my quotes. Uh, this one is from Joseph Campbell, who, as many of our listeners know, is is part of the inspiration for the show and the monomyth or the hero's journey. And I love the way he says this. Dream is personalized myth. Myth is depersonalized dream. Both myth and dream are symbolic in the same general way of the dynamics of the psyche. But in the dream, the forms are quirked by the particular troubles of the dreamer. Whereas in the myth, the problem and solution shown are directly valid for all mankind. So you're dreaming your personal myth and getting answers, to the, you know, to what you were just talking about, the questions you have, the things that you need to do, kind of dreaming your own myth.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And they do speak to you on an individual level. Right. And we talk about this, we'll be talking about this in the interview where we talk about symbols and how each person has their own association with the symbols of a dream, and it's not necessarily that you can go to a dream symbol book. And if I dream of a tiger, it's different than if you dream of a tiger. And so we get into all. I still go
2: to the
1: symbol book. I just want to be clear, though. I'm still googling the hell out of that. Like, oh, what does because that it's mean? fun. What does it's
0: that fun. mean? <laughs> it's absolutely fun to do, and I'm sure that there are some maybe cultural universal symbols that speak to us, but it is really think, as an is individual. Is water
1: always the unconscious? I wonder if that is a universal symbol because so many different societies have water. I guess if you have a drought, water wouldn't necessarily be the unconscious, but I do think that would be one of the more universal. For things. me,
0: it is. For me, it is. In fact, you know, I had a, a very uh, vivid dream where I was walking along a beach and uh, lots of the people I could see in the, in the, in the, on the beach were people that were known to me. I walked into the water. I saw some remnants of my life into the shallow parts of the water. And then there was this beautiful woman that was leading me into the depths of the ocean. And I submerged underneath the water. And that would be the metaphor for the collective unconscious, that mysterious mm-hmm. collective intellect that we all have access to. And, of course, the woman would represent my animo or my, the, my inner female who was leading me to that place. So I think Jung would say... I mean, in fact, he called midlife the night sea journey. So he was very much into the idea ah, that water was the unconscious. So you were very prescient, prescient there. So I, I want to introduce the folks to, to Stanley Krippner because um, we're going to get I to teased. the interview portion. Yeah, now. no, yeah, I Yeah, you teased. teased. You did, did tease him, which is awesome, though. I mean, it's, yeah. he's a phenomenal human being in addition to being an academician and author. Um, Dr. Stanley Krippner, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's a professor of psychology. But what I love about Stanley is that he's managed to garner esteem from some very mainstream and large psychological institutions like the American Psychological Association. He specializes in dreams and hypnosis, trauma, paranormal phenomena. He's the former director of the Malmanides uh, Medical Dream Center Research Laboratory in Brooklyn, New York. He's a prolific author. He's got dozens upon dozens of books, including Dream Telepathy, Extraordinary Dreams and How to Work With Them, The Mythic Path, Personal Mythology, as well as over 1,000 academic articles. And today, Stanley's going to help us figure out how to tap into our dreams and fantasies and intuitions and to find purpose and meaning in our lives. And he's also going to tell a fascinating story about his dream work with the Grateful Dead. So that, this is so up our alley, isn't it? It's absolutely important. It
1: totally is, this is like one of my favorite shows because I just I love the topic. I love having an expert. It's like being able to go to Google and having just the perfect answer every time,
2: which never happens.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to Dr. Stanley Krippner and our interview.
1: So, Stanley, I have a question for you. I so enjoyed learning about your extreme dreams information. And my question is, there are many different types of dreams. I would like for you to help me to connect with the dreams like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream where you feel like you're getting like almost a message from the soul uh, coming up. The dream state you get in when you sleep And, you know, you're kind of sorting and sifting and sorting. And then the kind of dream state you get in when you're in meditation, where you might get a vision or you might get something informative in that way. How are these things all connected?
2: Well, that's a very good question. So I'm going to answer it from the perspective of what we call dream science. Because dream science is an interdisciplinary field covering the neurosciences, psychology, anthropology, literature, etc. So, from the point of view of dream science, the proper definition of dreams, a dream, is it's a series of images, usually accompanied by emotion, that occurs during sleep. Okay, during sleep. That's it. Mm-hmm. Now, some people, like Martin Luther King, use dream as a metaphor. I have a dream. Right. Yes, he's not having a nighttime dream. He has a vision, what he'd like to see happen in the future, what Freud would call a wish fulfillment dream. Other people during meditation have a series of images that are dreamlike, but you can't really call them dreams because they take place when a person is awake. Correct. So you use the word dreamlike. It's a dreamlike experience. Mm-hmm. Some people have daydreams, and some of those daydreams are very vivid yeah. and very emotional. Well. You can call those daydreams, but again, those do not qualify as nighttime dreams. So, I think that the remarkable thing, of course, is that dreams are such a profound part of the human experience that people who speak English, at least, use the word "dream" in a variety of ways. Now, in Spanish, "dream" is "sueño," and there is a very famous Spanish play, "La Vida es un Sueño," Life is a Dream, and It's very apt metaphor because the play shows the ups and the downs of life, the Uh triumphs and the tragedies. Mm -hmm. So that is a very, very appropriate title. And then there was a popular song decades ago, Dream a Little, Dream Along With Me. And this was romantic. Again, Mm -hmm. a couple uh, trying to dream about their future together. So dream has been used in various ways.
0: Stanley, uh, one of the things about dreaming is that it is such a universal experience. We all dream whether we're able to remember our dreams or not. And you know, one of the things that I think people need to first embrace is the idea that dreams are important. They're not just an amalgam of these ridiculous images, that there's actually a purpose behind it. So why do you believe we dream? What purpose does it serve, our evolution or just our society that we dream?
2: Yes, I would say that there, in the field of dream science, there are three different points of view. The first point of view is that dreams are really not worth remembering. Many dreams are like cleaning the garbage out of our system, and they try to prune our memories, saving the good memories that are useful, getting rid of the memories that are not. And some very prominent people have taken this point of view. Now, there's another group of people that, oh, no, dreams are worth remembering. You can work with them. You can learn things from them, but they're not really important for human survival. They're sort of an epiphenomena, something that was sort of a sidetrack of evolution. And yes, they're interesting. And again, you can work with them psychotherapeutically. They have meaning, but they're not really a necessary part of the human condition. Now, the third group, which, of course, I happen to belong to, is that, yes, you can work with dreams for creative purposes, for therapeutic purposes, for self-development purposes, for research purposes, but the dream report is something that has enough clues in it to indicate it probably was an adaptive human trait and that people who did not dream or did not dream enough didn't survive very long. And I think now we have some evidence. When you look at the whole sleep cycle, you find out that non-dream sleep is where we process our long-term memories. REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is where we process short-term memories, memories of the day or the past few days. And I think that this indicates that rapid eye movement sleep, where most dreams occur, did have a evolutionary function, and they are part of what's hired in to help us to survive and survive well. I think that to take off from there, I would say that the memory function of both sleep and dreams is especially important. And of course, we sleep for many, many reasons, restorative reasons among them. But when dreams come into the picture, They must handle the daily experiences in some way or another. And here's how they do that. They sort the memories, and again, I think everybody, all three camps agree on this. They sort the memories, and they discard the ones that aren't too useful. They save the ones that are useful. But there's an interesting thing. So many dreams are useful, so many memories are useful. The dreams have to use it up a shorthand. And so this is where symbols and metaphors come into the picture. Mm-hmm. They condense experiences, and they can take a lot of memories and put them into a neat little package and saving untold hours of time. You don't remember and dis- discuss and download every single memory. No, that would take too much time. Dreams are very efficient. They have a type of shorthand to tell, that helps us do it. But remember that dreams also have to download emotions. If people are very excited and worked up and traumatized during the day, one of the functions of dreams is through frightening dreams, nightmares and the like. Process those emotions, get them out of the system. If somebody is too traumatized, if they have post-traumatic stress disorder, then dreams cannot serve that function. They keep trying to get it out of the system. They keep trying to putting it in metaphors and symbols, but they can't. It's the same traumatizing experience over and over again. And this is why PTSD people have nightmares and can't get a good night's sleep. But back to the majority of people, yes, dreams can be very unpleasant, but we shouldn't take that personally. Dreams are just doing their duty. Now, dreams also help us on our behalf. They help us problem-solve. I had just a very serious problem a few days ago. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had the answer. I had dreamed about it without even asking the dreams to work for me. The dreams just did that as part of their ordinary functioning. Dreams also help us plan for the future, rehearse for the future, and find ways to avoid threat, to avoid stress that has sort of preventive function. And I think there's fairly good research evidence. Backing each one of those claims of mine in terms of the functions of dreams. Mm. Now, of course, we have exceptional dreams that are very, very rare that probably fall into one of these other functions, but won't remember them for that. And these are the highly spiritual dreams where people have what we call a numinous dream, where they dream about Buddha or Jesus Christ or Mother Mary or some spiritual figure and they get some sort of consolation or advice. But also many people have dreams about departed relatives, departed loved ones. Well, who knows if they are the spirits of the loved ones or not, but the whole point is these can be very consoling, and sometimes they get very, very good advice from those departed loved ones. Absolutely. So, yeah, so these unusual dreams are rare, but they, even they seem to serve a function.
1: Okay, so I have so many questions, but I'm just going to start with this one. I use a website called Dream Moods when I'm trying to understand how to interpret the metaphor that I've been given for the dream. But I'm not sure that that is the best route to take uh, because I also suspect that each person's language or dictionary is reflective of their individual experience. Is there a collective dream language that we all share or is it individual or is it an amalgamation
2: of both of them? Okay, really, it's my opinion on that. The short answer is it's amalgamation of both of them. But back in tribal days, a culture would have dreams and the symbols and the metaphors would be the same for everybody in the culture because they had a shared mythology. Right. Nowadays, There is so much input, people have exposure to so many points of view, so many images on television and magazines and the movies, on the internet, that each person really has his or her own set of metaphors and symbols that have specific meanings. Now, having said that, I think there is evidence for what Carl Jung called a collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. And there are. Images in those collective unconscious memories that go back millennia that are fairly common across cultures, like the Earth Mother of the Earth Father, for example, like the magical child, like the trickster, etc., power animals, etc. Well, these are what are called archetypes, but again, right. Carl Jung stressed this, and many people forget this. He said the archetypes are expressed within the structure of the individual's culture and belief system. Okay. So even archetypes don't have a universal meaning. Mm-hmm. Even these archetypes, which are common across cultures, once right. you start working with them, you have to work with them within the structure of your own culture and your own experience.
1: That makes sense. Like a dragon, for instance, like a dragon out of the Eastern mythology might be a powerful, positive thing. And out of Western, it can be Game of Thrones-ish. So Absolutely.
2: Eastern and Western concepts of the dragon, which is an archetypal figure, were quite different. You're right. Yeah.
0: So Stanley, you mentioned Carl Jung. And one of the things that I believe Carl Jung said is that the most important question we can ask of ourselves is by what myth am I living? And we are a show about calling, right? We're a show, this is called Answer the Call because we want people to find their purpose in life. And how can dreams help people accomplish that task? How can dreams help people find their purpose, find their myth?
2: Yes, I will tell your readers that David Feinstein and I wrote an entire workbook on the topic called Personal Mythology, available on Amazon.com. This is a 12-week course on how to construct your own mythology, And dreams play a very important part in that. Now, to give you a brief example, first of all, I really need to define myth from a psychological point of view. In common usage, a myth is a superstition. It's something that is not useful. It's false, it's outdated. No, the anthropological and psychological point of view on myth is a little different. A myth is a statement or a story about vital existential human concerns and it has behavioral consequences. So we look at myth as a story, the story by which we make our decisions and run our lives. It might be a valuable story, it might be a flawed story, but yes, we, whether we know it or not, have an internal mythological structure that helps us to make decisions. And sometimes that myth is inconsistent We behave a different way with family than we do with strangers or friends or business associates. But the myth, if we plummet to the depth, will help us to bring some consistency to our life. And I would say that, for example, I'm going to give you an example on how you can use your dreams to discover your personal myth. And this is for your listeners. Next time you have a very emotional dream Just focus on the emotion and find the emotion within your body. What part of your body really feels that emotion, whether it's happiness or sadness, whether it's anger or terror, whatever. Find that emotion in your body and then take a trip to your past. When did you have that emotion before? And go back as far as you can. What experience can you remember? very, very vivid experience, or you had that feeling of joy or anger or terror or whatever. Once you have identified such an experience in your life, you ask yourself to remember every single detail you can without exaggerating, without getting into the false memories. What are you sure that you remember about that experience? And then you ask yourself, what effect did that experience and experiences like it have on my life? And The answer to that is going to be part of your personal myth. Somebody might say, oh, after I got that praise from my parents, I knew that my parents loved me and that I was a valuable person and that I could do great things in the world. Okay, that became a personal myth. Or the person might say, well, my parents were always saying I would never amount to anything. I could never do anything as well as my sister and that I was really... Not, not much good. All right. How did that have an effect on your life? I think the feeling is obvious. Maybe the person outgrew that, but for a period of time, that was their personal myth. All right. Then you take that statement that you came upon back to the dream. Nine chances out of 10, the dream will reflect that personal myth. The dream will either reinforce it and say, yes, you've got to keep that personal myth. Or the dream will cast questions about it. That myth isn't serving you too well anymore. This is where it's going to lead you. It's going to lead you into negative consequences. You better change it. Or the dream might actually show you how to change it. That's unpredictable. But because dreams process emotions and keep processing them throughout our lives, it's very likely that the emotion in the dream is trying in some way to not only download what's happened during the day, but maybe to, shall we say, knit up some uh, ragged edges of the past. So that's my quick answer to your question. This gives an exercise for your listeners to try out on their own.
1: Okay. So I want to take that even one step further. Can you ask before you go to sleep, Can you ask your collective conscious, your unconscious, are there differences between the two, to help you pull in this data?
2: Well, this is called dream incubation. Yes, you can do this. And you have to have a very, very specific question in mind. And the way to do this is to do some self-suggestion. Say that you're in school and you have an assignment to write an essay and you can't imagine what you're gonna write the essay about. So you say, tonight when I go to sleep, I'm going to have a dream that will help me to write my essay. Okay, you say that over and over again, but you have to add something. I'm going to have a dream about my essay and I'll remember it when I wake up.
1: <laughs> so you have to tell yourself to remember, yes. huh?
0: That was my yes. next question. <laughs> when
1: I wake up.
2: And then you have tape recorder or iPhone or pencil and paper by your bedside. If you do remember the dream, when you wake up, record it some way or another. Many people think, oh, that dream was so vivid. I can't possibly forget that. They go to sleep the next morning. They wake up. They can't remember the dream. Yeah. I've been there, done that.
0: Yeah, me too. It's best to do it in the moment if you can, even if you have to try to get yourself back to sleep. Stanley, I remember I I saw an interview recently with you, and you said something that I found funny, and I also wanted to explore it a little bit to find out what you you meant by it. But you said that uh, dreams can sometimes make fun of us for going down the wrong track. So what kind of a dream might that be? And how do you take those messages and maybe get back on the right track?
2: You know, there's a there's a lot of theories about dreams, but the most recent one by Kelly Balkley, published in the journal Dreaming, which is the official journal of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, IASD, and I'll urge your listeners to look up their website and consider joining. Kelly Balkley thinks the main function of dreams is play. That all of these functions that I've already mentioned are an example of the Brain playing with itself. The metaphors and symbols, yes, that's all done in the sense of play. They serve a purpose, but that's fun. Uh, fun to create these metaphors. Creative dreams are fun. It's the mind and brain enjoying themselves. Freud was onto this when he talked about the use of puns in dreams. We have a lot of dreams which are word plays. So I would say he was the first to introduce the notion of dreams as play, at least to some. Extent. And now Kelly Bulkley has taken all sorts of psychophysiological material and has shown how thinking of dreams as play really explains and becomes a unifying force for a lot of what we know about dreams. So, having said that, that's a long answer to your question, but that educates your listeners because they now know the latest theory on on
1: dreams. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a nice theory, but there are some dreams in which playing is not on the table. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody's had dreams in which you cannot wait to get out of the dream or the dream. I've had dreams which are just monotonous. They just kind of go on and on. And then somewhere I'm, you know, you have, at least I do, every emotion imaginable from scared to terrified to elated. Um, sometimes I feel like there's a void of a presence there just various things so I like the idea of play but I'm having a hard time connecting it with with some of the dreams that I've had
2: okay let me help you out let's take the dream that's monotonous coming over and over again the dream is playing because it's repeating something that you really need to know and it's monotonous because it's sort of saying If you don't catch it the first time, catch it the second time. (laughs) I'm going to repeat it five or six times so you're sure to remember and take action on it. So that's play. Okay. Yeah, take the very terrifying dreams. Well, when the dream plays, sometimes it doesn't have to play with something happy. It can play with something sad. Creative people create tragedies as well as comedies. And so that theatrical aspect of dreams giving you a tragic or sad or frightening dream is a way of playing you out of that emotional hang-up so that you feel better the next morning.
0: Mm. Interesting. There's it a- is
2: interesting because I don't wake up feeling
1: like I've played it out. Like I wake up still in that state.
2: If but- you wake up still in that state, you're in what we call the hypnopompic state. And that means the dream really wasn't quite over. Mm-hmm. That. Maybe for physiological reasons, you woke up a little too soon. Well, that can't yes, be that helped.
1: It very well be, <laughs> and that's and then
0: it'll repeat itself again until right. you <laughs>
1: finish.
0: you have to let it finish talking. Uh, Stanley, I'm fascinated by another type of creative dream. You mentioned creative dreams and play, but there's also the kind of creative dream where you're given an inspiration. This has happened to me where I've been sort of I don't know gifted with some sort of a creative product or project that i need to be engaged in can you talk a little bit about that process and maybe some examples of other famous people that have had that type of inspiration
2: oh good heavens yes dreams can be extremely creative i think the very act of dreaming is creative because it creates all these symbols and metaphors that uh, provide such useful purposes and whether you call that player It's something very unusual that the mind and brain do while we're asleep. Some of your listeners might know the story because Paul McCartney has repeated this in television interviews, but his famous song, Yesterday, came to him in a dream. This is the song that is the most copied, the most recorded of any contemporary English language song, and it came to him virtually word to word in a dream. When he woke up, of course, he wrote it down and he asked a lot of friends if they had heard the lyrics or remembered the melody because he saw Mother Mary. (laughs) Yes, couldn't believe that it was in such good form, such good shape. Well, and then you have the famous dream of Robert Louis Stevenson, who actually was in control of his dreams, what we call lucid dreams. You realize that the dreaming when the dream is going on and he got his dream brownies to work in terms of creating short stories and novellas, the most famous being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had three dreams, and of course, he dreamed that he was the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde character, and going through all of these changes, drinking the mind-changing potion, and he was so eager to write it down, he said, the brownies have done their work for me again. But then you have Very different dreams, Frederick Banton discovered insulin as a result of the dream. Otto Lowy won the Nobel Prize for discovering the way that nerve cells make connections in the brain during a dream. The the list goes on and on. Uh, Popular songs, um, novels, film scripts, uh, chemistry, uh, physics discoveries, any of these can take place in a dream. I think Einstein
0: talked about thought experiments, which really were, I think, day, daydream experiences where he would allow himself to fantasize. So there is sort of that relationship between maybe waking fantasies and creative dreams as well.
2: Oh, good heavens, yes. Thought experiments are very popular in, in all of the sciences. And the fact that people can do thought experiments really stems from their ability to, to have nighttime dreams, in my opinion. Hmm. They're already primed for that.
1: Do you, are you familiar with Vishnu and Vishnu dreaming the universe?
2: Of course. <laughs> I think that that's a beautiful metaphor. And Vishnu dreamed the universe up. And this is really the theme of Frederick Allen Wolf's book, The Dreaming Universe. He's a quantum physicist. And he makes the case for the universe dreaming itself into existence.
0: Oh, sort of well, like a dream where all the characters are dreaming it's It's pretty fascinating to
2: look at it that way, it is yes,,
1: what also is a little matrixy, but anyway it, it but it's also kind of fun because one of the things that I follow is a different thing called law of attraction, and kind of the idea is that the universe is constantly expanding and you're constantly bringing in things that are in vibrational alignment to you, and in some ways that still align with the dream state in that you're you're Cons- your unconsciousness is working on that expansion at all times. So, in a sense, you are kind of dreaming the universe.
2: Absolutely, that's very, very well put. It's almost like in chaos theory, there is a chaotic attractor that pulls things to it, and that brings order out of chaos. And chaos theory was originally applied to very small, microscopic elements. But now it's been brought into the areas of psychology and psychotherapy and how a person's personal mythology can attract things to it and flesh out the mythology and create order out of a chaotic life.
0: Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned also the, the, the idea of big dreams versus small dreams. I remember I had a dream from which I awoke and I said to myself, this may be the most important dream of my life. And I think when I have those kinds of dreams, it's usually because the dream is smarter than I am, or it's wittier than I am, or it uses a language that I could never conceive of. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between, say, a big dream and a small dream?
2: Once again, Kelly Bulkley has written a marvelous book called Big Dreams, and I'll have your listeners go to Amazon.com and look up his name because he's one of the best writers on dreams alive today and his written so wisely especially about uh, spiritual dreams but anyway back back to your question yes a big dream addresses key elements of our personal mythology so that would be my definition of a big dream and the way it does that is a lot of emotion a lot of imagery usually a lot of color and a lot of Second thoughts, when one wakes up, I have mm-hmm. just had the most important dream in my life. I've had a dream that's going to change everything. I've had a dream that gives an answer to the question. A person realizes that the dream was important. Important. If they're wise, they will try to learn something by it, write it down, and put it to use. And then there's those
1: moments. I just had a dream. I think it was this morning, which is kind of funny, in which I just finished a big project that I'd struggled with for many years to be blunt about it a long, long time. And in the dream, I walked in, I saw this woman, this white woman, she was all white hair, clothing, everything, walk into my office. And I walked into my office and she had set up shop. She had uh, my aunt's blow up mattress. She was sleeping in my office and she had a partner with her that was from the circus. He was like 12 feet tall. So he couldn't really fit in the office. And I looked at her and I said, it's time for you to leave. And he goes, yeah, it is time for her to leave. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of fun because it was almost like a letting go of or a clearing out of that energy, which had also, that was the metaphor. But in reality, I had finished something that had just felt like it was almost taxing to complete and something I, yet I really wanted to, even though it was taxing. So I felt like I was letting go of energy that was no longer serving me.
2: Oh, well, that's a very good example, of course you're right. Letting go of an energy that's no longer serving you exactly a revision of your personal mythology sure yep.
0: now you've um and, and by the way, back to the the concept of the big dream versus small dream, when I had my big dream, the reason why I felt like it was a big dream because it had mythological characters in it It had dragons, it involved my mother and my father in fact i I told this.
1: It to- the list.
0: <laughs> I told this dream in a psychology class and the professor said, I have some Freudians who would pay to analyze you. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> if you have any Freudian friends, I could use the cash. But I think those mythological, um, those mythological symbols, I think, really are a good trigger to me when it's a, a big dream. Now this morning, and before I went to bed, I knew we were going to talk to you today. And I, I asked for some help on an issue and uh, I, you know, I have a daughter who's going through trouble at school. There are two sides to the story. And this morning, I woke up in sort of that twilight phase, uh, and, the, and the term Occam's Razor came to me. Now, I don't even know what Occam's Razor is, but I did Google it, and it is the absolute perfect metaphor, or, or, or it's the perfect word to describe what's happening in my current situation. And it did give me some insight. That's
2: more, a little bit less mythological, still important. But that's remarkable, because once you know what Occam's razor is, that can be a very important part of your personal mythology. And to your listeners, let me just say, Occam's razor slices things down so you have the simplest explanation for a puzzle. Yes, and, and that can be very, very useful in one's personal life. Absolutely. You probably heard Occam's razor or read about it someplace and forgot it, but it came to your rescue Uh it-
0: Absolutely did, because we have two sides to this situation. And one of the things with Occam's Razor is the the side that requires the most assumptions is probably the side that's furthest from the truth. And so this really puts me in a good situation when I go to the school to, to address this. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about that twilight phase incidentally? Because there is this place where you're not quite dreaming, but you're not quite awake. And I find I get so much rich material from that. How does how is that separate from dreaming? Like how separated are you from the unconscious and collective unconscious at that
2: point? Yes. Well, first of all, remember that nature doesn't make the same divisions that humans do. And so in nature everything is all one and They would, in nature would probably laugh at us for making divisions between non-dreaming sleep, dreaming sleep, and the twilight stages. But we have to do that to get on with our lives. When you wake up in the morning, you often have what is called a hypnopompic state because it's in between dreams and waking. Now, if some of your listeners and viewers have never had that experience, don't feel badly. Some people have it. Some people don't. But for those people who do have it, this can be a period of very, very rich imagery and even insights. Same thing when you're going to sleep at night. Sometimes people hover between wakefulness and sleep. Now you look at their EEGs and you have a lot of slow wave sleep, even theta waves, which is unusual at that time of the night that you should have slow brain waves. But there is a physiological marker of course, I'm sure that all of your listeners will know the Frankenstein movies and the original book by Mary Shelley. Well, Mary Shelley was on vacation with her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the famous English poet, and there were the Lord Byron and his group in Italy. <laughs> what a matchup. There's been a whole movie about that <laughs> week in Italy. It's, many celebrated people. Count Calabari was there. Anyway, It was raining in sunny Italy, they were so disappointed. And Lord Byron said, we're gonna have a contest. We're we're gonna gather tomorrow at dinner and whoever can tell the most frightening ghost story will win the prize. And not a prize of cash, unfortunately, but sort of an honorary prize. Well, Mary Shelley went to bed and before she fell asleep, she had hypnagogic imagery. And it was about this doctor who would go to a graveyard and would uh, wait until a body was buried and then dig it up and slice off the parts, sewing them together, create a human being, take it out on a mountaintop during a thunderstorm and the lightning, voila, would bring it to life. And then would get into all sorts of mischief. When she published her book, she actually published a preface telling how the story had come. By the way, she did win the prize. (laughs) So that's a very famous hypnagogic uh, image. I love it. Another one, uh, Frederick Keckley, a German scientist, was by a fireplace and he was about to go to sleep. And he began to have some hypnagogic images of a snake-like image grabbing a tail in its teeth. Now, he'd been working on organic chemistry on how benzene is conceptualized. And he, Well, this is a mistake we've been making. Benzene is a ring, it's carbon atoms making a ring of itself. Well, that discovery, which came in hypnagogic imagery laid the whole basis for the future of organic chemistry. So when you say they get rich material from these twilight states, yes, you certainly do.
1: Okay, so what if you have that dream about the snake and you totally miss the fact that it's related to benzene? Like sometimes I feel like I've gotten the answer, but yet I didn't get the answer.
2: This happens, and <laughs> thank I'm you. Sure this happens more often than not, but we'll never know. A person has a dream that might be very important for them, and they don't pay attention to it. They miss the boat. I'm sure Even this happens very often.
1: Yeah. No, like I can pay attention to it. I can ruminate about it. I can ask questions about it. And sometimes I do feel like, like whatever I've seen held a key, but I just can't seem to access it. So I may be the only one in that, but- uh,
0: I don't no, think I'm you not are. the only one. No, again. no, 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 no. <laughs> so Stanley, I would like to talk about people who have dreams where they believe they're experiencing a past life. Uh, what, what would clue somebody in to the fact that it I might be a past life dream. Yeah, like what, what, what's, the, what's going on there?
2: A number of things are going on. Again, this could be a good metaphor for people who dream about a past life. What's happening in that past life and what lesson does it have for our life today? Now, when people come to me and say, oh, I'm convinced this was about a past life, I say, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But if you have this dream, It means that something is going on in your current life that you have to pay attention to. And maybe it is a residue from a past life. I'm not going to deny that. But don't worry about whether it's from the past life or not. Focus on what it's telling you about your life today. Now, the only reason that you could really verify that it's from a past life is if you get enough details to go to the history books or go to the genealogical records and see if there actually was a person with that name doing the things that happened in that particular dream. So there is a way that you can check on the so-called past life dreams. And once in a while, people seem to hit pay dirt. There's a whole series of experiments along those lines, mainly by Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia and the people who followed after him. So I'm not saying that this is impossible. But the bottom line is, how is it going to help our life today?
0: Right. You've got to bring it into the present. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So
1: bringing that up actually triggered something for me because one where I felt like I was in a past life, I was actually on a magic carpet uh, going through the halls of Nazi Germany. But what's interesting to me is I don't know any German. I'm not around German. But I felt like I, even though I couldn't understand, what I felt like was happening is that people were talking in fluent German all around me. And I've had that in other languages too, where I don't understand what's being said, but it feels like the language is organic. Like if I could understand it, it would mean something. Uh, Do other people experience language challenges or even feel like they know a language in a dream?
2: Well, yes, they do. And again, that could be evidence for a past life, the residue of a past life. And this is a controversial topic, but sometimes people will actually dream about words from a language they've never studied. Mm -hmm. and This is called cryptonesia, remembering something which is a puzzle. And there are studies where these words are copied down, taken to a linguist, and sometimes he tracks down their origin, and it's in a language that no longer exists, what we call the dead language. That's a whole topic of really fascinating uh, Uh studies. And again, your listeners can Google kryptonesia, but don't go on Wikipedia. They deny there's anything like a past life. (laughs) Stay away from what they have to say about it. They're very biased about uh, things that are on the fringe.
0: Yeah, if you want to check out past life uh, material, you did mention Ian Stevenson and the Division of Perceptual Studies at um, University of Virginia, some great people down there. And I think Duke University's Rhine Center might also have some great material as well.
2: That's right. The Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. Both of them have websites Sure.
0: So you've conducted so many different dream workshops. I think I saw one statistic of collection of 1,666 dreams. I'm sure that it's just uh, increased. In fact, it's increased by two. Kristen's shared a couple. I've, I, I think I did too. So, but um, one of the things that fascinated me is you talked about the fact that there could be gender differences in how people dream. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Do men and women dream differently or have oh, a different yes, dream yes, language? Yes.
2: yes, they do. That's a very interesting question and I have, with my colleagues, published the results from the United States, England, Brazil, Argentina, and Japan. Right now we're working on the Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I collected those dreams during workshops in these different countries. And to give you a summary and tell you what it means, there are differences between men and women in dreams across cultures men dream more about weapons. Okay, you say, well, that's common sense. Well, but remember this, it demonstrates there's a continuity between dream life and waking life. Women dream more about children than men do. All right, once again, you say that's common sense, but think of what it means. Dream life and waking life overlap, they merge together. And you can go down the list with all of these gender differences. Of course, with recent years, there's been more of an egalitarian relationship between genders. So some of those differences are disappearing, but you still have a very, very interesting statistic. Men dream more about men than they do about women. And women dream more about men than they do about women. And to me... This shows the inherent sexism across cultures. Men are the power players in all of the countries that we've analyzed. And so, of course, women are dreaming more more about Mm. men. I hope that within the next decades, that will start to shift and change. And if it does, it'll show up in our dreams.
0: And you found some interesting things about transgender dreams as well, didn't you?
2: Oh, good heavens, I did the first study on transgender dreams decades ago, and it was fascinating. We took a group of men who were transitioning into women and had them relate their most recent dreams. And the interesting thing is that when you looked at the gender scales, they were right in between the typical male dream and the typical female dream. Fascinating. So their transgender status did show up in the dreams. Now, after they'd transitioned, hopefully successfully as women, my hunch is that their dreams would change and they would have more of the so-called female dreams. Mm-hmm. Never know because this study is yet to be done.
1: So the study itself brings up an interesting concept, which is an awareness of dreams. Like you have a dream and sometimes you're watching the dream. You remember it when you wake up. Sometimes you can actually be a player in the dream and you can influence the dream and you can take the dream to new places can you talk about lucid dreaming for a moment?
2: Yes. First of all, people can be the witness in the dream and watch something that's going on. They can be the participant in the dream. They can be an actor in the dream. But another possibility is that they become aware, you know, I am dreaming. I'm taking a part in this particular dream. And then many of them take the next step. I'm going to change things a little bit. I'm going to start to fly. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to take a trip to my girlfriend's apartment and pay her a visit. Or I'm going to go back into time. Now, sometimes they're actually able to do this. Not always, but sometimes they can do it. Sometimes they just are aware that they're dreaming. And then shortly after that, they wake up. But believe it or not, there are now workshops going on in the United States where people are actually teaching members of the workshop, how to become a better lucid dreamer. Robert Wagoner runs such a workshop. Elliot Gish runs such a workshop. And they're getting customers. So this is a very unique perspective on dreams. And why would people want to become aware that they're dreaming? Well, for self-exploration, also for self-regulation, just the sense of mastery, doing something unusual with their consciousness. And this is where play comes into the picture again. Some people do it in a very playful mood. This would be fun to have a lucid dream. I'll have sex in my lucid dream. I can't get
1: (laughs) aged for having a lucid dream sex. No, I, I might have done that with George Clooney, but anyway, moving on. Um, now, I do find it interesting, and in the show that I was listening that you did on Extreme Dreaming, you mentioned looking at the hands, and I thought that was an interesting concept. Do you want to explain that a little bit? While you yes,
2: this is this is the advice that uh, that supposed Don Juan Mathis gave to Carlos Castaneda. You look at your hands before you go to sleep, and tell yourself that you will be awake and aware in your dreams. And this actually works. You don't have to look at your hands. You can incubate a lucid dream other ways too. But it actually was good advice. It worked for me. It's worked for other people. And it's worked for uh, Carlos Castaneda. That's one of many, many ways to have a lucid dream. One of my former students wrote her doctoral dissertation on having people incubate a dream about God. And sure enough after getting lessons in lucid dreaming, they all had dreams about God. And Uh the interesting thing, their image of God in the dream matched what they described God would be in the journal they wrote before they had their lucid dream. Some people thought that God was white light. Okay, they dreamed about white light. Some people thought that God was a wise woman. Fine, they dreamed about a wise woman. Some felt it was a burst of energy. So their concept of God was mirrored in their dream. And who's to say, maybe they're all right. Maybe God takes several faces to different people. Why not?
0: You know, I saw that same interview, Kristen, last night, and I forgot to look at my hands before I went to bed. I was so <laughs> upset this morning. But uh, I have had a lucid dream. And I tell you, I remember it, it stuck with me. I was I was in a castle and I, was, I woke up and I was touching the wall and I could feel the moisture on the wall. And that, tex- that texture is still with me even to this day. And I've tried to get back to, it, but it's only happened two or three times. I've tried to get back to that place because it is playful and it is fun. And I haven't been able to do it. So that's why I was going to try that technique last night. But um, Stanley, you mentioned um, earlier, we were talking about, we have been talking a little bit about collective dreams and the idea that a, a dream is sort of a personal myth and the myth is a collective dream. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between dreams, and mythology?
2: Well, sure. That, I think, stems from our previous discussion. Uh, Many dreams do address issues in our own personal myth and our own personal mythology. And one way to understand dreams is to look at dreams as a mythic story. And I gave one exercise that people could do. Now, not all dreams are that profound, good heavens. Again, some dreams are simply play. the and don't have to be taken too seriously. Other dreams are pretty profound, and the big dreams with a lot of emotion, mythological characters, stirring stories, those can be traced back to a person's mythology or maybe the mythology that they need to develop. Remember that a myth is a statement or story about existential human concerns that has behavioral consequences. A myth does all three things, and the dream can be a story. It can be about something important, and it can tell us what to do. It has behavioral consequences. So there, the connection between myth and dreams is very obvious.
0: What about the concept of the collective dream? If if a personal dream is evolutionarily helpful, I would imagine, yeah, right. I would imagine mythologies are also collectively helpful. What are our mythologies telling us today that might help us survive and thrive?
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing that comes up over and over again in the dream conferences, more and more people are having dreams about the fate of the earth, which is pretty dismal. And... In the old days, many Freudians would say, well, you're dreaming about a hot spell, uh, lack of uh, water. That means there's something in your life that is barren like a desert and would dismiss any notion of a collective consciousness. Nowadays, I think that uh, people are not that locked in to the old-fashioned individualistic interpretations. Yes, people can have dreams that other people are having, especially when something like the fate of the earth is at stake. And so, I think the notion of collective dreams is more urgent now in terms of what's going on in our poor, shattered world that ever was before. Of course, whole tribes back in the prehistoric times and maybe even in ancient times would have collective dreams, and then the shaman or the uh, priest in the society would take those seriously and would address the issues that the people had, especially if they're related to the safety and security of the, of the community. Now, there's a big earthwild community, and the fate of the earth is certainly at stake. And so, why not? People are having these collective dreams because of a concern, a collective concern.
1: It's so interesting to me the interpretation, and you know, it makes sense because the the fate of the earth is something that we hear about every day with climate change. With you know, all these things today, I saw a thing where these poor walruses were dying because they haven't learned how to climb down rocks because they've always had ice to slide down into the ocean, so they're falling to their death. It was just a devastating thing. So one of the things I'm interested in is are you familiar with Joseph and the Technicolor dream code or Absolutely.
2: Hit- yes. Beautiful talk show.
1: about that a bit.
2: Yes. Uh, Joseph as you remember the biblical story, he was called upon to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. Yep. That there were be the, uh he, well Pharaoh dreamed that there were seven fat cattle and seven skinny cattle. And Joseph said, well, that means there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So you had better start stocking up grain in the warehouse. And sure enough, the pharaoh did that. And his people in Egypt were the only ones that survived this regional famine. Everybody else starved, but his people had plenty because they had grain in the warehouse. And that, of course, gave Joseph a favored position in uh, in the court.
1: No, I was just going to say, so sometimes dreams deliver future answers as well. Like, that just sounds to me like, you know, they're they're speaking to the collective unconscious, but also speaking to what is actually going to happen.
2: Yes, you see, when I said that dreams help us plan for the future, dreams don't have the notion of the rigid dividing line between past, present, and the future yeah. that we do in our daily life. And so sometimes dreams do pull in something from the future that we really need to know. I have a colleague who had a dream about a bridge being washed away on a trip that he was going to take. And at first he decided he'd take another route. And then he decided, no, I want to find out if that dream is actually valid. So he and his wife took the trip. The bridge was washed out and they were a day late for their appointment. So it verified his dream. It ruins his plans, but at least it satisfied his curiosity.
0: So that is some somewhat, is that called a precognitive dream? Is that similar yes, to that? Yes, that's what it's
2: called a precognitive dream. Now, you talked about the Rhine Research Center. They have a collection of several thousand dreams, many of them precognitive. And when somebody took action, in 80% of the cases, that disaster was averted, So that means to me that the future is not predestined, it's not locked in, that human intention can still make a little change or maybe a big change if they use precautions and take things seriously. The most dramatic one that I can think of off the top of my head that was written in was from a mother who had a baby and it was a fairly poor family And they all were in one room, the father and mother in one bed, the baby in a crib. And the mother had a dream that the chandelier had dropped on the baby's bed, killing the baby at exactly two o'clock in the morning. So she got out of bed and took the baby into their own bed. And the husband, of course, oh, it's just a dream, just a dream. Believe it or not, exactly two o'clock in the morning, the chandelier fell on the baby's crib. Wow. Now, You can always say, well, the mother noticed the chandelier was sort of hanging by a thread. Yes, that's possible. It doesn't quite explain how the 2 a.m. was so accurate. Or you can say, well, the mother is just making it up and she sent in the dream to give a little uh, publicity for herself. Well, maybe so, but why would somebody go to all of that trouble if it were done just as a hoax? I mean, who would ever find out about that? So I'm prone to believe that that was an example of a precognitive dream, but one where a real disaster was averted by human will and human action.
0: I think, Stanley, one of the things that people are seeing with you and something that's evident over your entire career is that you have brought this concept of serious academic rigor and approach to topics that are somewhat existential or esoteric. And it, it's been fascinating to sort of follow your work. And I'm especially fascinated and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, the work that you did with the Grateful Dead. And then everyone's f- familiar with that band back in the 19, I guess, 60s and 70s. And specifically, maybe even as it relates to either hypnosis or dream work.
2: Yes, indeed. For 10 years, I was director of the Dream Laboratory at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. And I should say that we did experiments with not only precognitive dreams, but telepathic dreams. And just last year, an article came out in the International Journal of Dream Research. Over the span of 50 years, 50 bona fide experiments have been done with dreams and telepathy or clairvoyance or precognition. And half of them were done at Maimonides. The other half were done at other places. All of them were statistically significant, indicating we have a real phenomenon here, And the dreams that were done after Maimonides were about the same as the dreams done at Maimonides, which indicates they replicated our results. Now, having said that, we did a little pilot study at Maimonides with the Grateful Dead. And the pilot study was suggested by Jerry Garcia. He said, we're going to be doing a concert in Port Chester, New York. Why don't you have somebody sleeping at your laboratory and we'll try to send an image. And I said, fine, that's a great idea. So they were there for eight nights. And on each of those eight nights, uh, I think it was eight nights, but whatever, we had a staff person in the booth with two slides. And at the last minute, he flipped a coin and that determined what slide was put on the slide projector and projected as part of the light show. People in the Grateful Dead audience were told to try to send that message to Brooklyn and to the person who was dreaming in Brooklyn. And believe it or not, it worked out. I think that uh, we got maybe six hits out of the eight nights. I remember one night the slide was the seven spinal chakras by a Syrian artist named Skralian. And it shows a man sitting in the lotus position with the seven chakras lit up. And the dreamer had a dream about the spinal cord. He had a dream about an energy box and he had a person who was on a spiritual quest, all three of which of course are related to the dream. Now we have ways of evaluating this and having people look at all of the dreams and try to match the dreams of the night. And that's how we know if there's something that's going on above and beyond the laws of chance. But I was at one of those nights and Jerry Garcia and uh, Phil Lesh, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzman were all looking at the slide, making comments about it. And then they picked up their instruments and started to play improvisation, the music to the slide. And the people in the audience back in those days, most of them were high from marijuana or from psychedelic drugs. And so they were very much in an altered state and eager to go along and give this a try. So, yeah, so that experiment has been written up many, many places, even more than our more bona fide experiments with more nights and better controls. And so... To this day, I am surprised to see people remember it. Every now and when, Some will came up. Oh, yes, I was in one of those audiences. I remember very well oh. that experiment. <laughs> oh, that is
1: so fun. That is so, so fun. Oh, my goodness. So I have a, a question about a different dream I had. There's, I have a place where I go. It's in the mountains, and it just feels like the energy is different, and the, I don't know, everything feels a, a little bit different there. And I dreamt that I was talking to myself, but the self that came through was in like the year 7032. I was just coming off of the tennis courts in Russia. And it was just as clear as could be. That's where I was. And I was, I didn't give a message. I didn't do anything. I was just like, Oh, yeah, it's a yeah, I just wanted to tell you it's 7032. And it was just, I don't know, because I don't think about a future, like, it just was so random to me. Can you send yourself messages in dreams? Like you're talking about sending images between people. Can you send information to yourself?
2: Yes, absolutely. Remember, the dream is very playful. And that's one way that the dream can have fun, having you send messages to yourself. Absolutely, you can do that. Again, those messages might be meaningful. They might have something mythological about them and something personal about them. But that's one of the many forms that dreams can take.
0: And I, I love the fact that yes, dreams can be fun. I think what we're, we're, we've discussed this entire time is that they're also extremely useful and practical, and it's worth the attempt to learn how to work with them. And that brings me to my final question, which is basically where can people find your work? Where can people? I know you wrote the book Extraordinary Dreams. Uh, I'd like for people to be able to access. Your work You've mentioned Amazon. They're not a sponsor. Maybe they will be after this show. But uh, where yeah. can people find out more about you and your work?
2: Well, they can go to Amazon and buy the book Dream Telepathy, now out of print, but they have a few used copies. And that will tell them about the 10 years of work we did at Maimonides Medical Center. A more recent book, it's not all that recent, but it's still in print, is Extraordinary Dreams. And this is where my co-authors and I discuss Uh, Lucid dreams, collective dreams, dreams about the future, dreams from loved ones who have passed on, all of the types of dreams we've been talking about today. And so those are the two easiest ways to access my work. But then to tell you the truth, the best way would be to join the International Association for the Study of Dreams, because then you have access to all of the articles that I have written for journal, the journal Dreaming, and also for the ISD newsletter, not only me, but a couple of dozen other people who specialize in dreams. And that's a very good resource for learning more about dream science. So I'm always happy to put in the plug for IASD. They're meeting next week in the Netherlands. It's an international group. Next year, they'll be meeting at this time in Scottsdale, Arizona. And People who love dreams really need to become members of this very vital organization. So anyway, back to your question, I think that if they are on academic.com, they can access all of my articles. Academia is a is sort of a scholarly website and you can join that at a low cost and get access to literally thousands of dreams on any topic that has been published in a scholarly journal.
0: Nice. Wonderful resource.
2: So those are a number of ways.
1: Well, Stanley, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. It is oh, just been absolutely fascinating.
2: Thank you. So nice we just to touched
0: see. the surface. We just scratched yeah. the surface with you. We're going to have to do more shows. We could do a whole season with Stanley Krippner. Great. Good. <laughs> thank you okay, so much, Stanley.
1: So nice to be with you both. You have been listening to Answer the Call with Brandon and Kristen.